I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... Companies like Google, instead of fighting unions, should embrace them. Because you know what? If you look at capitals around the world, people have stopped listening to Google. So the chamber has got a lot of things going, and the next thing up is going to be, you know, like the national spelling bee? Well, we're going to have a national civics bee. Go get online and get a copy of the test that you have to take to become a citizen. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. It's What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh, and a great thing about this show is we have fabulous guests. Every now and then, it's obvious that two guests, if you had them in the room at the same time, would have interesting collisions, combinations, and sort of outcomes of conversations about important issues that they face. And today, we have two for you. David Goodfriend, a lobbyist here in the Washington, D.C. area, former counsel and attorney for the Federal Communications Commission, and Tom Donahue, former CEO of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. They have both parallel and, in some cases, conflicting views about regulation. Sure, when David was at the FCC, he wanted to make sure that the airwaves and the Internet was regulated for us to use and uh, and maybe abuse. In fact, David was trying to keep cell phone costs down. I think he wasn't that successful at it. Tom Donahue, on the other hand, was saying, hey, you know what? There's too much regulation. Small businesses, like the 400,000 of them that are belonging to my organization, have too much regulation over all the features of their business. So that's the kind of conversation where when you combine them together, and our executive producer, Tracy Madigan, is doing that, you see some comparison of views, some comparisons of conclusions, and some comparisons of outcomes that makes this show fun to listen to because what's working in Washington can have very different definitions from very different guests. Once again, David Goodfriend, lobbyist in Washington, D.C., and Tom Donahue, former CEO of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, Compared and contrasted here on What's Working in Washington. Labor, you and I have discussed in the past, organized labor has, I think, is at, was at historical low levels quite recently. Are they coming off the mat? Do you see new initiatives that organized labor is doing to engage new types of people? Are they fighting back to non-union corporations that are getting huge traction? Where are we there? I think I should disclose to everybody who's listening, I have my own practice. I represent private companies and I represent labor unions. And so I have a pretty good idea of, at least within the labor movement, what the perception is. And by far, within labor, people perceive President Joe Biden as the most pro-union president probably since Harry Truman. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is a long time. Mm -hmm. So there's no question that there's a change in temperature at the White House about organized labor. There's also no question, however, that, as you point out, Union density has declined significantly in the United States. In most of the industrialized world today, it's about 30, 33 percent of the workforce is unionized. In the United States, in the 50s and 60s, it was 40, sometimes 50 percent. Today, it's around 10 or less, depending on whether you include public employees. So there's clearly a, a drop in union density. What I think we're seeing, though, is not so much a political issue, but something that's happening in the American people, where... Folks who have no idea what a labor union is think it's perfectly reasonable for workers to get together and bargain as a unit. Well, let me break in there because I think we discussed off-air Amazon. You know, the COVID pandemic has, I would suggest, altered the way we view home delivery of everything. Yes. And Amazon's the king in that. So it seems like there's kind of a groundswell. That's a wrong term. Groundswell for people saying – Amazon employees in these giant, you know, humorless humanity, soul-sucking warehouses, and they are, are really doing all the work for us in a post-COVID environment. 
shouldn't they have some kind of protection? Do you think that that kind of theory or that kind of emotion is starting to take hold? I absolutely do, and I've seen polling that reflects it. The majority of Amazon users feel some level of guilt using Amazon, and it's largely tied to two things, the impact on small businesses and the impact on workers, Mm -hmm. which is extremely important because it means as a business matter, as a matter of brand equity, Amazon really better pay attention to that. They have to understand that their consumers are increasingly aware of what Amazon is doing behind the smiley face on the side of the truck. You know, there are warehouses where people are underpaid and overworked and mistreated. How do I know that? Well, we know from the report that was released by the House Antitrust Subcommittee that whenever Amazon opens a warehouse in a town, the prevailing wage at every warehouse goes down. Hmm. That means that Amazon is driving wages down even in non-Amazon warehouses. Mm -hmm. We know that workers have complained about being surveilled about being mistreated. We know this. I mean, these are facts. No one's arguing about it. The question I think really is, for those of us who rely on Amazon at home during COVID for deliveries, can we expect the same level of service? I would argue not only can you expect it, but it's going to get better. Mm-hmm. Data shows that when employees are treated well, when they feel that they have some control over their environment, when they feel that they are bought in, they perform better, mm-hmm. which is why I think we need to break this paradigm that somehow labor is antithetical to good business. But that, I, <clears throat> that got it. I, I Much of what you said makes sense to me. But then there's the the uh, furor over Google not being unionized. And I think Google is such a different kind of corporation than Amazon. You know, we all, many people think of Google as billionaires strolling around Los Altos, California, and they're, you know, doing their tech thing. What's the argument for them to be unionized? It's a fascinating argument. We do tend to think of computer programmers as being to write, able to write their own ticket, right? Why would they need a union, right? Mm-hmm. The employees at Google have walked out over disagreements with management. Uh, and these are not... Um, warehouse workers. These are highly trained uh, computer programmers, economists, and others. And I think there's a real reason why. And in fact, I've published this in The Nation magazine. You can look it up online. We, I, I argued that companies like Google, instead of fighting unions, should embrace them. Because you know what? If you look at government head, uh, capitals around the world, people have stopped listening to Google. If they had a union with them who could say, look, we're the workers and this is something that we think would be good public policy, I think Google would actually get a lot farther. Well, I know I know you have an example that I'd love to have you share with our, our listeners where a union and a private organization team together yes. and use leverage with a larger organization. What? Who were the players in that? Okay, so I had and still have two clients. One is the Communications Workers of America. Mm-hmm. That's the union that's organizing Google. The other is an independent television network called Fuse, sure. Fuse Media. Yeah. It recently went through a management buyout so that today it is one of the only Latino-owned independent media companies in the country. Hmm. Fuse had a dispute with AT&T. Fuse wanted to be renewed, but they wanted to be paid like everybody else. AT&T was saying no and offering terms that really would have meant the death of Fuse. I knew that CWA had its share of differences with AT&T also. AT&T said CWA, who had changed the game. They promised one thing, they did another. They promised to use the tax windfall from the Trump tax cuts to hire more people, and they didn't. They promised to have union agreements transfer over to Warner, and they didn't. So I knew both these clients were a little ticked off at AT&T, and all I did was introduce them to each other. Mm-hmm. And the rest is history. Fuse, a Latino-owned company, and CWA, a major American labor union, got together and said, hey, AT&T, don't kill 
fuse. We need a Latino voice out there. And you know what happened? A deal got struck. And it was a great example of a company and a labor union working at it. But I just want to add one other thing, Mark. Yeah. Before the labor union was willing to stick its neck out for the company, they had a request. They said, listen, you're not unionized and you're asking us to go up against a unionized ah. company. All we want from you, Fuse, is a promise that if your workers want to organize, you'll let them. Yeah. So the CEO of a private company put out a public statement saying, I have no problem with my employees organizing. I think it's the right thing to do, and I stand with CWA. And bam, at that moment, they created an alliance that beat AT&T. Well, the name of the show is What's Working in Washington, and David, you've examined, uh, you, you've expressed, rather, the perfect example, I think, of leverage, which means so much in Washington. We're going to take a break in a little bit, but let me let me do a quick lightning round with you before we do. You, All right. You've swum deeply in the waters of telecommunications for many, many years. You were a counsel for one of the FCC commissioners. Yep. Um, I believe our mobile communications technology and what we pay for, for bandwidth in our mobile devices is some ridiculous multiple of what people pay in India and other major economies. That's right. Why is it so expensive here? Because in the United States, we overemphasize profit. In most of the world, telecommunications policy is done in such a way that we actually ask, is the consumer getting the right price? Is the consumer getting it available enough? We treat it a little bit more like a public resource, which it is. The wireless frequencies that we're using to talk to people in their cars and homes is public property. It's an FCC license. In most of the world, the providers are given some conditions. You can't, you can't charge too much, okay? Here in the United States, the minute you say rate regulation, yeah. it's like you've just decided to throw grandma out the window. <laughs> People, like, lose their minds. You can't possibly mean that. This is America. And so what do we have? The highest cost per bit of anywhere in the world. Now, you've, you've intrigued me. <laughs> uh, can you walk me through a pathway where that changes? Sure. It is entirely reasonable to say to a wireless company or any other licensee, if you're going to offer the high-end service, you also must offer a basic, affordable, low-end service. I'm not telling you to charge everybody the same for everything. Just make sure there's a basic level of service at a cheap price for everybody. New York State tried to require that yeah. and got sued oh. successfully. Okay, A court blocked that law. Let's go to lobbying. You are a lobbyist. You are a registered lobbyist, correct? I am, and yes. I'm even willing to admit that yeah. on this radio network. You are. Well, there are a wide variety of media and other characterizations of lobbyists that get kind of negative. I have always spent a lot of time defending it because, in my experience, way more limited than yours, elected officials do need full information for, to make a wide variety of decisions. And often that information comes from people that care about one side or the other. And lo without lobbyists, I would argue decisions would be far less effective and far less informed and probably far more deleterious to our nation. With that as background, what's the business like today than it was when you first became exposed to it when you first joined government? First of all, Mark, sometimes lobbying does deserve a bad name, and it's usually because money drowns out other voices. So a lobbyist is really just uh, an instrument, a soldier. You know, do you blame the soldier or do you blame the general who gave the orders? Uh, there are big banks and big corporations that can afford to pay a lot of lobbyists and therefore their voice gets heard more than, say, the average person who doesn't have representation. And that's a shame, right? But there are also lobbyists who represent public interest groups or labor unions or others that are speaking for a wide swath. Well, tell us the one you that, that you started for the sports fans. Well, I started a nonprofit called Sports Fans Coalition. And it sounds trivial, but it's not. Sports 
and the media around sports are one of the biggest industries in the United States. Millions of Americans love it and pay for it, whether they realize it or not, and should have a voice in the making of public policy. So, for example, 29 of the 32 NFL stadiums out there were built with taxpayer money. And yet fans really didn't have a seat at the table in deciding that particular issue. So we lobby as a nonprofit. Anytime government or public taxpayer money is used, the fans ought to have a benefit. How about giving free tickets to veterans and public school kids, for example, if you're going to use public money to build a stadium? How about making sure that those games are available to everybody, whether or not they can afford to watch it? Little things like that, but they really go a long way. And the biggest win that we ever did was getting the Federal Communications Commission to end the sports blackout rule which had been on the books for 40 years. A round of applause Thank for that. I please, well, re- it was remind, not easy. Remind our, our listeners what the blackout rule sure. was. Sure. Well, uh, starting in 1975, when the NFL said, hey, we didn't sell out enough tickets, so we're going to black out the game locally, the NFL got the Federal Communications Commission to back it up by saying, yeah, and nobody else, not a cable company or anybody else, can show that game either. So it was sort of a federal rule that backed up a really obnoxious private rule by the league. It was extortion in my personal opinion. Well, it certainly showed the power of the NFL. So I declared war on the NFL and they tried to crush me. They tried to get every, every one of their uh, powerful lobbyists and lawyers to work against me. But I'm proud to say that because of people around the country writing letters to the FCC saying, look, I, I can't afford to go to the game or I'm in a wheelchair and I couldn't go to the game if I wanted to. When you black out a game, it, it hurts me. That's my team. I want to watch. We won five to zero unanimous vote. Republicans and Democrats alike voting with the fans against the NFL to end the sports blackout rule. It was a great victory. Now, that's an example of a lobbyist, me, or any lobbyist, really, trying to do something in the public interest. So you can't really throw the baby out with the bathwater. We're not all terrible people, but there are some out there that I think abuse the system and they should be called on. But your your original assertion was that it's really about volume and dollars, which is fine. So your point, though, is that if I'm uh, a member of a huge org- a huge uh, marketplace, let's pretend it's AT&T, and I'm using that only as an example. I'm okay. not suggesting they're wrong or they're a bad company, but they can afford to have four, five, 10, 15 lobbyists. They can afford to have millions, if not tens of millions of dollars annually spent on lobbying. And your point is that that literally just drowns out the ability for, oh, I don't know, a smaller uh, a smaller connectivity company or maybe even a not-for-profit consumer re- representation group to get access to those offices of congressional people, staffers, and senators, right? Let's not stop with lobbying. Let's okay. talk about buying advertising on television, on the Internet. Uh, let's talk about grassroots campaigns. Everything costs money. So by definition, there are some very well-financed interests that do have a bigger megaphone. But I have proven, including with the example I just gave you, that it's possible for a small group of people with the right message and the right kind of integrity to get a win, to get it done. And I think it happens more frequently than people realize. If we don't believe in the system, nobody will. Mm -hmm. If we lawyers, yes, lobbyists, public advocates, people who do this stuff for a living, if we don't believe that this is actually a sacred and good democracy— and carry out advocacy as it's supposed to be done. Nobody will. And we're going to do it because if we don't, who will? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that being said, though, let's get back to your you know size versus you know like an AT&T or a large player, small right. player. I do think uh, very well-heeled lobbying efforts are able to control marketplaces, people's lives, uh, institutions in ways that makes them feel powerless. Yeah. Th- listen, Mark, and just imagine if that frustration were – 
tapped into in a way that we got real change done. Can you imagine if everybody who's ever marched in a Black Lives Matter protest, and everybody who ever marched uh, for Trump got together and said, we don't think the system's working and we'd like to see some changes. I think you'd see some big changes. Let's talk about the city of Washington, D.C. Ah, yes. Yes, you are, you are a denizen of its, uh, of its halls and its power. And I'm interested in your thoughts about where the city is today as an operating entity, uh, as a place where venture capital, I mean, I, you know, I'm an entrepreneur in startups. Right. But what's your sort of overall sense of the city? First of all, it's a disgrace in the United States of America that almost a million people are not fully represented. We should have statehood now. You're here. Second of all, it's one of the most dynamic cities in the world. And I'm not just talking about the monuments. I'm talking about the restaurants, the music, the architecture. Black America has an incredible amount of history right there in the 8th Street Corridor. Yep. Okay? And I do think that one of, the, one of its signature qualities is the kind of inclusiveness that we've had here, you know, for, for almost a, a century, I would argue. Yeah. So it's a great city. I love D.C. The economics are, always have to precede the revival, as we know. There is, a, there is a kind of underbelly to all this that we should talk about as well, which is there is also a booming homeless population in the district right now. Correct. And for me, you know, I have an office near Union Station, near 8th Street. I see all these spectacular condos going up and homeless people living in tents right below them. Yeah. That's a failure. That's a big F. Okay, we can do better than that. And I think the way to do better at that is simply to require developers to make sure that we're building enough affordable housing as a condition to building. Remember when I said to you, how can we have cheaper broadband? How about every time you take a public dollar, you got to offer a lower cost option? How about this? When developers build those spectacular, and I do mean spectacular condos, we got to have a little bit more affordable housing in the city. David? But it's a problem. David, you're a capitalist with a heart. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. We've been joined by David Goodfriend today. We hope you enjoyed it. After the break, we'll have Tom Donahue, former CEO of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, with some thoughts that may compare, contrast, and conflict with what you just heard from David Goodfriend. I'm very pleased to be here. So the chamber under your domain became, uh, as John Podesta said, uh, I may disagree with a lot of things that Tom Donahue says, but I know that he's built it into one of the most important institutions in the city. When you joined the chamber in the late 90s, what was appealing to you about it to take the job? Well, I had an advantage over many of the other candidates and that I had worked for them for eight years before I went to the truckers. I knew the system. I knew what was inside and I had watched, and the biggest issue was that, and it's pretty simple, they had lost some members over a big argument on health care, and therefore they had lost a lot of money. And uh, it's sometimes harder for the people that were there during the problem to fix it. How many members were there when you showed up, and what did it grow in size to? We have, the chamber has about 400,000 little members. Wow. It has thousands and thousands of big companies, and it has relationships with many, many more through our state and local chambers and the major trade associations in Washington. You, it seems like the chamber is strongly aligned with the Business Roundtables of the World, National Association of Manufacturers. Are those the types of associations you're talking about? Well, those two organizations are part of the team. We Got have it. a 
fundamental value system that says nobody sells against those guys right. because we need to be a partner with them to take difficult things on together when that has to be done or whoever stands alone is really in trouble. Yeah. But as long as the three organizations look at the complicated issues generally with a common view, it's hard to attack one. Now, there are thousands and thousands of associations yeah. in the United States, some in Washington, some in New York, some in Chicago, some on the West Coast. And I would say there were, we had a group of 100, which was like really 120 or 30, which we worked with, and they were major supporters of us. And we had thousands of others that whenever their issue came up, they'd be there. Yeah. Well, I guess the, the, the reputation or at least the sort of the profile of the chamber often sounds to the uninitiated out there, the unschooled, the unwashed masses about small business. And it sounds like with 400,000 members, you had many small businesses as part of your organization, correct? Oh, tons of them. Yeah. And then we had many more that were engaged with those other organizations, state and local chambers, associations. What people have to understand, a lot of people say, hey, we, we really love small business, but we don't like big businesses. Well, that's interesting. Small businesses have thousands and, in fact, millions of jobs. Yep. And because of large businesses. I mean, you look at Boeing. Yeah. You look at Caterpillar. You look at American Express. Those people hire thousands and thousands of small businesses. Right, right. It's a system. Think of distribution issues. You've got to have massive places where the product is made or where the major uh, companies that can do big things with lots of capital are, but then they need a distribution system. Right. And small businesses, let's say you had a construction business, a little truck you're running around with. You can say, oh, I'm not doing any stuff with small, big businesses. Yeah, you are. You, you, you go to the major sources of where they operate, and they have people that help you design what you're going to do, and they sell you the lumber and the nails. It is an integrated system that works very well. Yeah. A lot of small businesses think they're going to be big businesses someday. So it doesn't... You know, to say small businesses like there's a big gap between them and, quote, big businesses, to your point, they all end up doing business together. It's funny. I was talking with folks at Boeing the other day, and they said, you know, do you know how many, how many subs and subs of subs and subs and subs we have for anything we build? It's a whole network, which I'm sure you saw your members asking you to help promote their strengths. So what were some of the issues that members brought up that became key for your members in the first chunk of your career, the first four or five years at the, at the chamber? You said healthcare was one. But the issues with us in the very beginning was to go out uh, and convince the American business community, the larger guys first, that uh, we're going to do things in a way that uh, they're going to want to pay us a good deal of money. When I came back to the chamber, I brought six six-figure checks with a letter that said, this is for this year and we'll do it one more year and then the future will be on how you perform. Mm -hmm. And that sent a message to the people in the building and to other companies that watched this that this was going to be different. 
And then we took a theory that said, if we have all these members, we got to have a bigger board. And the board of the chamber doesn't run it. Mm -hmm. It holds it in trust for the American business community. And we have an executive committee. Uh, and so we went into whatever the, the problems were facing the business community, and they're always different. Mm -hmm. And we followed that with one change in place. We did whatever we had to do to help, you know, with the, the uh, roundtable and the NAM. We got together and we took big issues. But what we did is we said, if you, running a big or a small company, have a particular problem, if at all possible, we'd help you with it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people said, you can't do that. I mean, if you're doing separate things for all these people, you'll never. I said, you can do that. Called customer service. Right, right. And shocking. Ju just yeah. knowing that you said, here, let's look at it together. Let's think what we have to do changed everything. Mm -hmm. But the issues were clear. They were trade, mm -hmm. they were investment issues, it was regulation um, all over the place. And we went after those regulations. And we had our law firm mm -hmm. to, if the, a major corporation, got into a law firm, a big, ugly thing. And uh, they got to the point they were trying to get into the, to the Supreme Court. They had a 3 to 4% chance of getting in the Supreme Court. Mm. If we did it, it was 30 to 40%. That's better. That's better. Yeah. And when we do it, the chance of winning goes way up. You and your colleagues definitely carved out a profile of trying to slim down regulations so businesses, small or big, could have a lot more flexibility. What were some of the victories against regulation that you and your colleagues were most proud of over the time? Well, we first of all changed the laws all across this country, state by state, on class action lawyers who really worked out a heck of a business. I mean, I admired them as business people. They were going in and uh, suing uh, companies on this class action deal. It was extortion. Yeah. We'll go after you and if you, you don't behave, you're going to be in trouble because all of your investors are going to be after you, so pay us this much. Well, we said, nah, and uh, we went in there and we played hardball all over the country. We went into the elections for, for class action lawyers. In many of the states, it was an election system. Yeah. And we went in there and the class action lawyers were putting tons of money in there. Well, we outtunned them and we went in there and beat them. And then we, we got into the regulatory stuff on everything from transportation to trade to uh, corporate regulation. Mm -hmm. it, was a, it was phenomenal. Yeah. Remember, the chamber had about 550 people working for us, and they were really smart, able folks. By the time we got finished, we started paying serious money and hiring serious people. Tom Donahue, thank you for being with us today on What's Working in Washington. Really glad to be here. The team behind What's Working in Washington is a great group. The executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Online content, Anna DeGraff. And that theme music you enjoy, performed by the Sunbathers. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.